Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration. I'd just like to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. I think the Uluru Statement, when it was crafted, and the sequence that we created, which was voice first, voice to parliaments, treaty and truth-telling, that sequence is so important because if the Commonwealth Government just go directly to treaty, who do they talk to? Advancing Indigenous Affairs in 2023 and Reflections on the National Apology, what reforms will lead to better outcomes for First Nations children? The second thing is building and strengthening the Aboriginal community-controlled sector to develop the best possible services that our people need, delivered by our people. And the third is that all government institutions have to be safe and culturally respectful in dealing with our people. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. So far, this year's news cycle has been dominated by the upcoming referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament, a proposal which has been met with a broad range of responses from both the Indigenous and non-Indigenous community. We've also seen a surge in violence and crime in Alice Springs and calls to address Indigenous disadvantage more broadly, particularly in the areas of education, health and housing. Meanwhile, in Victoria, the path towards a treaty continues following the establishment of a treaty authority, an independent umpire that will oversee negotiations between governments and traditional owners. Then there are calls for reform of the state's bail laws following a recent coronial inquest into the death of Veronica Nelson. Jill Gallagher has been a mainstay working in the Aboriginal community in Victoria from the time she began her career working at the Museum of Victoria to her current position of CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. She is a woman of many talents and in 2018 she was appointed the Commissioner of the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, a position she held until recently. Jill Gallagher, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you for having me. The area that you have worked in, of course, is the community-controlled sector. And I was wondering if you could share with us your reflections on why it's so important to have this sector working on a range of issues important to First Nations people, including the area of health that you've worked in for so many years. What is it that the community-controlled sector does that mainstream services don't do? Here in Victoria, we have 32 Aboriginal organisations sprinkled around the state of Victoria. They range from a small organisation who may be established in the small population of Aboriginal people to a place such as Rumbalara, which is in Shepparton, and they provide services to our families and our communities on the social determinants of health, not just the clinic, So Rumbalara, the difference between Rumbalara and mainstream is we know who our vulnerable families are. We don't have to do a research project to find out because we know. We live in the community. Our service providers live in their community. So they know the community. They know what is needed. And those wraparound services, there needs to be a lot more contributed to prevention. So at the moment, what I see is that 
governments provide a lot of resources for children that have already been taken away from their families and put into care. I don't see the same amount of resources put in from building our families up and our communities up so our children don't go into out-of-home care. There is not a balance of prevention as opposed to the tertiary end. It's a very powerful observation. When we've had you on the show recently, of course, it's been in your previous role as Victoria's first Treaty Commissioner. And I wonder now, just looking back on that extraordinary work that you did in getting through that part of the process, what your reflections are on the importance of these kind of processes. Back in 2015, I think it was, the Victorian State Government put treaty on the table. And at first, we as Aboriginal people thought, oh, yeah, here we go again. But no, they were serious. But then we had a dilemma, and the dilemma was, who do they talk to? Who does the Victorian state government talk to so they know what they need to do with treaty or treaties? So my role as the commissioner was not to negotiate treaties. It was to actually set up a voice. It was actually designed engage with communities in Victoria, come up with some guiding principles of what this voice would look like and then implement it, set it up. So that's what happened. I set up the First People's Assembly of Victoria. And so their achievement to date, which is quite amazing, is now that government had a voice to negotiate with, what they've achieved is the uh, treaty negotiating framework That basically outlines how treaties, not just one treaty, how treaties will be negotiated here in Victoria. The other thing they were supposed to set up was the Treaty Authority, which is the independent umpire, which they've done. Then the Truth Commission, which Uruk is now set up. Tick, that's been done. And now the Self-Determination Fund, which is to help our people to be able to negotiate on an even playing field when they negotiate with government around their treaties. It's obviously been the jurisdiction that's progressed the absolute most in this area and has sort of led the way for other jurisdictions to follow. I'm thinking, of course, particularly of Queensland that's progressing down this path and looking very closely at Victoria. But, of course, with the very unique position that you've been in through the Victorian process, you've obviously got a very unique experience for understanding what a voice to Parliament at the national level would be. Have you got any thoughts that you can share with us on what a voice to Parliament at the national level might achieve, given all you've seen play out in Victoria? I think the Uluru Statement, when it was crafted, and the sequence that we created, which was voice first, voice to Parliament, treaty and truth-telling, that sequence is so important Because if the Commonwealth Government just go directly to treaty, who do they talk to? They need that voice and they need that voice that's enshrined in talks to parliaments, that is enshrined in the Constitution. That's the important part of the recipe to get to treaties, is that voice first And it's about our standing as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's about our standing in this country. It's about uh, empowerment. It's about hope. It's a whole range of things. Um, And um, I'm 
I'm just overwhelmed to think that the Australian communities are happy to see a voice coming along in a referendum so we can vote on. Just um, reflecting on what you've said about what was achieved in Victoria, you noted that when the proposal was first announced, people were really sceptical about it, and for good reason, lots of promises, lots of not delivering on those promises. Um, But, of course, then you've talked us through everything that's been achieved in relation to the rep body, the Treaty Commission and the truth-telling. When you look back now, how did you see the community changing and engaging once they realised that there was actually a possibility for change? When I look back at what we achieved here in Victoria, even in the very early days, we were sceptical. I never believed, and I'm a mature-age woman, I never believed I would ever see treaties being negotiated in my lifetime. I thought this was work that I was embarking on that was going to help future generations. Given what's been achieved in Victoria, I now believe I will see treaties in my lifetime negotiated on Aboriginal lands right across Victoria. So that's exciting. And I hope I get to see that, and probably not, but I hope to get to see that at a national level because the Commonwealth Government is a key player in this space of treaties right across this continent. It is a very, very hopeful thing. But also, of course, your advocacy on the day-to-day coalface issues has not stopped for one minute. And I noticed you were attending the coronial inquiry into the death of Gunditjmara woman Veronica Nelson in Melbourne. And one of the main issues that has come up in relation to what happened to her was the need for changes to bail reform laws. What are your thoughts about what needs to happen, being, seeing as though you've been so close to this case? My thoughts on what needs to happen, definitely bail reform, and but also a lot of education needs to happen in all areas because if you look at the Veronica Nelson case and what I sat through, through the inquest, and what I had to listen to and what I had to visually see, it was no words can describe the trauma and I'm not even a relative of Veronica. Her family were in that room and they heard and saw everything that happened to her. But the whole system let Veronica down. From the time of her arrest, suspected shoplifting, to when she was locked up, bail denied, and no one took her serious from a health perspective. The whole system let her down. We've got to stop locking up our people for what I see that are crimes of poverty. Not many people knew Veronica Nelson outside of Victoria. She was a kind, very gentle soul. And to see what happened to her because of the uh, system and the racism that still exists in the year 2020 when she did die, it's appalling. We are a well-developed country and we cannot allow that to happen. We do need bail reform and we need a public health model of health services delivered to all prisoners. Victoria, I believe, is the only state in Australia that contracts private providers. So, of course, their aim is profit because they're a private company. 
but you want people to provide health services who come from a human rights point of view, who come from a care factor, not from a profit-driven motives. Yes, well put. I'm struck by this conversation with you that we talked earlier about how wonderful it's been to actually think that there could be treaties in your lifetime when you hadn't thought there could be and how much progress that got made. And listening to you talk about what you've observed in relation to Veronica Nelson's experience and the tragedy around her circumstance that you know, the issues that you're talking about have been ones that you've been campaigning about. They came up in the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. They've occurred in other deaths in custody that were completely preventable. It feels like things haven't changed. How do you balance the places where we've gone forward and, and those areas where we still need drastic change? Well, the uh, Royal Commission that you mentioned that happened, what, 30 years ago? Yeah, Not a lot has changed since then because it wasn't implemented because we don't have a voice to Parliament. If we had a voice to Parliament, that is enshrined in our constitution, the monitoring and the accountability that that voice could help prevent that and ensure that whatever Royal Commission gets up, that the recommendations are implemented. I'm dumbfounded to think that 30 years on and very little has been implemented out of the Royal Commission. One of the coroner's recommendations was that the Royal Commission recommendations to be implemented. What's so hard about that? You've been such a long-term campaigner for First Nations rights, been at the coalface of the health sector for a very long time and, as we mentioned, took on this unique role as Victoria's first treaty commissioner, which I don't imagine was a job for the faint-hearted. You've done them all with so much energy and wisdom and I was just wondering if you could share with us where do you get your strength from to keep fighting this good fight? Where I get this strength from is from the Veronica Nelsons, is from all the other Aboriginal people who've died in custody, is from my own elder in my own family who is 96-year-old Gunditjmara woman. Her name is Frances Gallagher and she's my mother and she was born in 1926. So she was born into her own country where she wasn't even counted as a citizen. I get my strength from the past and I also get my strength of the future of what can be. Jill Gallagher, thank you so much for your time. It is always an absolute privilege to hear you talk and thank you so much for the very important work that you continue to do. Jill Gallagher is the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. You're listening to Speaking Out. This comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories too. 
The recent anniversary of the National Apology to the Stolen Generations provided an opportunity to reflect on our nation's past. It was also a moment to consider how best to ensure greater outcomes for First Nations children today. More on that shortly, but right now, some music from Gamilaroi actor, presenter and performer Mitch Tambo. Well, I'm by, Marie. Well, I'm by, you know. Well, I'm by, Marie. Well, I'm 
Mitch Tambo with the song Wollumbah. Earlier this month, a number of Indigenous community members, politicians and advocates came together in Canberra to mark the 15th anniversary of the National Apology to the Stolen Generations. It coincided with the release of a new Closing the Gap implementation plan with additional funding to address disadvantage in areas such as housing, education and water infrastructure. Hosted by the Healing Foundation, the event brought together Minister for Indigenous Australians Linda Burney, First Nations Foundation Chairperson Ian Ham, and CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation and Chair of the Coalition of Peaks, Auntie Pat Turner. My mother and her sister were forcibly removed by the police from a place called Billingaro, inland from Borroloola and taken overland by police, two little girls, to Mataranka and put on the train to Carlin Compound in Darwin. My auntie never met her mother again. My mother did after we tracked her down. Actually, my brother worked at Social Security and he and he checked all the age pensions and he found her. He wasn't supposed to do it. (laughs) Um, But he did uh, find my grandmother and in 1978, straight after Christmas, Boxing Day in fact, myself and two of my brothers drove to, well first we went to Borroloola and then we had to go back to Tannumbrini and we found our grandmother and met her for the first time. So we stayed with her for a few days and then we went home and told Mum we found her. Mum was real wild. But we had to be sure because we didn't want to get Mum's hopes up. She had, then she went to Darwin because my uncle had come down from Darwin and, and picked Nana up and took her up to Darwin with them and Mum met Nana in May, I think it was, 1979 and we had Nana for another 10 years before she passed. So we were lucky because so many of our children who were removed and continued to be removed never had that opportunity. So... That's where the Gadanji side of my life stems from. My mum and my grandmother. All of my mother's siblings were removed forcibly by the police. The sisters, the two sisters went to Carlin and the boys were sent to Garden Point and one was sent to uh, St Francis in Adelaide. They're all dead now, and the same on my mother's side. Dead before they saw justice. For me, I was glad when the former government announced the recompense of stolen generations in the territories. But to me, $75,000 is a drop in the ocean. The trauma and the healing services are insufficient and uncoordinated, with different approaches being taken 
uh, right across the country because people are scrabbling to deal with the resources. There are many things that's required. I think the gold card is an excellent idea. And the Healing Foundation is a member of the Coalition of Peaks, which I now lead, uh, and we're all working together to close the gap. So we will fully support the Healing Foundation to exercise its, agencies on its agency on behalf of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, families impacted by the stolen generations uh, to achieve a final settlement. That is what we've got to go for, and it's not just money. It's all of the issues that need to be sought through. I think we can do more work on this, and the peaks, all of the peaks can contribute, as well as all of you who work every day to deal with the people who are still suffering. We all suffer. We all suffer. We've all lost. We have all lost as a result of our parents being forcibly removed. But, it, as Senator Dodson said, we have to stay the course. We have to continue, we have to be determined, and we have to do it properly. Now, this national agreement on closing the gap, closing the gap was announced the same day as the national apology in 2008. And then Kevin Rudd, signed an agreement with the state governments and a statement of intent only with the Aboriginal leaders to close the gap in a generation. So 2008, a generation is 25 years, you do the sums. Not long left, okay? Not long left to close the gap. But we have to continue to plug away and think. And I've been in... Uh, Aboriginal affairs, like most of you, and working for justice all my life, all my adult working life, apart from a couple of jobs with uh, being an invoice clerk and, and things like that when I first started. But I'm getting tired of the incremental piecemeal responses from government. I'm getting tired. I'm 70 years old now and I'm tired. I am really tired. So what we have to do is work out how we can get a full and proper settlement for the stolen generations that is all-inclusive, that is determined by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people only who were directly impacted and the offspring. Right? Let's get that sorted. It'll take a while. And let's use the mechanism that we've developed. We've got 80 peaks in the uh, coalition of peaks who negotiate with all Australian governments. So I met with National Cabinet a couple of weeks ago and I asked if I could go and meet each state premier and their cabinets and they've all agreed and I'll be doing that very soon. You know, it's got to be done. We've got four priority reforms that drive the structural change about the way governments work with our people. That's what the national agreement is all about. The first one is shared decision-making between our people and governments. So we don't go along and get consulted anymore or get hand-picked to be an advisor. We go to the table with our own agency representing our people and speaking up for them. And we negotiate. 
right? Don't forget that. Don't talk to government people if they're not going to negotiate with you. The second thing is building and strengthening the Aboriginal community controlled sector to develop the best possible services that our people need, delivered by our people. The fourth is sharing of data and information so our people can make informed choices. And the third is that all government institutions have to be safe and culturally respect respectful in dealing with our people. And whether that's hospitals, prisons, out-of-home care, whatever. All of those places have to be safe for our people to use and they have to be culturally respectful. We've got a good relationship with the new Albanese government for which I am most grateful. Thank you, Linda. So what's been really good with Linda and um, Prime Minister Albanese, sorry, Minister, but the influence that she's had in Cabinet as our Minister has been excellent. And we've always advocated for a Cabinet Minister to handle our affairs because that's where the strength is, in the Cabinet. So Linda has fought tirelessly that we have built and strengthened Aboriginal community-controlled organisations with the capacity and the competencies and the real resources to do the advocacy and, the, well, to do the service delivery that our people need so much. Because if we do it, we do it better. We know that because I run Nacho with 145 AMSs right across the country. We employ more Aboriginal people at the local level where we are established and Torres Strait Islander people and we get better outcomes and we get better stickability with our services. So every community controlled organisation that delivers services has to do it at the highest, most competent level. So they've got the, they need the training, the money, uh, to ensure the staff are uh, right up there with the best, and that's our people, our people in these jobs. But what the government has done under the leadership of Prime Minister Albanese and our minister, um, Minister Burney, is to give a charter letter to every minister in the Albanese government to say you are as responsible as the next minister for implementing the closing the gap. And you have to do it from within your department as well. And they have now tasked the secretaries, the head of every department in Canberra, to implement the four priority reforms. So the biggest thing for me is having the agents, all of those priority reforms, but the building and strengthening of the community controlled sector to deliver our own services <coughs> and provide real jobs for our people is a real high priority for me. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. I'm not going to speak with the leadership of Linda, the wisdom of Pat Dotson, certainly the power of Pat Turner. I don't think anybody can speak with the power of Pat Turner except Pat Turner. And certainly not with the youthful hope of Ellen and Blake. But what I can talk about is, yes, I'm the chair of the, the uh, Stolen Generations Reference Group. Uh, I'm on the board of the Healing Foundation. I do other stuff. But today, first and foremost, I'm like many people in this room. I'm just one of the stolen children. I, like many of you, was taken when I was young. I, like many of you, are probably still trying to find our place in the world whether it's with our families, 
whether it's with our communities, whether it's in our country. And it's with us every day we get out of bed. The apology anniversary matters to me, not because of its national significance, not because it had a profound effect on this country, but because of what it means to me. I think Australia has had three, it's had two forks in the road. It's had many forks in the road. Every nation does. But there's two to date that stand out for me. And at the end of the day, I am a fairly simple person. I think of the 67 referendum not in terms of what the ballot paper said about the census and the Commonwealth making laws, but a simple question Australia had to ask itself. Do Aborigines belong in this country? Yes or no? And Australia said yes. And in 2008, Kevin Rudd got out of bed, looked in the mirror and said, as Prime Minister, I look into the mirror this morning and say, does this country, when all is said and done, should this country apologise to the Aboriginal people for stealing their children? And his answer was yes. And later this year, there's another profound question, and it's not, should there be a thing called a voice? Should Parliament make the rules? And the other bit, which I forget, but it's a very simple question. Should Aboriginal people be allowed to speak? Yes or no? And everything else that's going on with it is just fluff that doesn't matter. It's a simple question. But I remind myself of the simplicity of the apology. I remind myself what it meant to, meant to me that day. I think about the 12th of February. I had to argue with people about who I was. You had to, you had to say to people and explain yourself. You felt you had to justify yourself. And then Kevin Rudd said a single word. In 67, after it was all said and done, there was a single word. It was citizen. If we get this referendum over in the next few months, it'll be a single word, voice. 13th of February, for all those who said it wasn't enough and for all those who said it was too much and for everything else, it's still a single word that reverberates now. Sorry. And that still, for me, carries me through the day. It gets me up in the morning. It makes me want to come and spend time here with that unbroken bond of us within the Aboriginal community, a group who know, a group, the only one who understands us is us. To live the life of a stolen child, you can't explain it. You can't detail it. My new friend Lester said something before. He said, being a stolen child is not something you get over, you just get used to it. But the good thing of getting used to it is that we do this. We come together to remind, remind ourselves that because of the apology, it didn't change everything, but it changed a few things. And there has to be better days ahead, that we do have to get better. We have to act. 
Steve spoke about our report, Make Healing Happen. I might live to see the end of it, but I'm certainly glad that I'm here to see the start of it. And our, our young people, the bit that makes me really do this every day is my kids, Jasper and Isabel. If there is one thing I'm determined to do above all else, it is not burden them. It's not burden them with me being the bad things in me as their father. The dread I have of some days of being a stolen child. I am determined to do that. And Blake and Ellen give me hope, give me drive, give all of us drive, every one of us who are the stolen children, a point of being. If it, it is not only about us, it is about the generations to come, and that's really important. I think as we reflect tomorrow, we'll be at Parliament House and then the delivery of the new Closing the Gap targets. Those things for me are important. But the most important thing is that, again, this country on an annual basis has to look in the mirror and sometimes shy away from what it doesn't like to see. If you're a mature nation, if you're a grown-up nation, if, in one of better terms, you get to wear your big boy pants, you have to look in the mirror and own all your story, not just the bits you like, but all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, and commit yourself to doing something about it. That's what this day reminds me of. That's what the apology reminds me of. That's why I Google it sometimes to see Kevin Rudd say sorry, and it reminds me. And I think that that's really important for all of us to rededicate ourselves to. And certainly the Healing Foundation will keep doing it as much as we're wanted to keep doing it and all the other Stolen Generations organisations throughout Australia. But when you get to the end of speaking, you usually say, there's just usually two words you put on the end of it. I say this to you for giving me the time so that you could hear me speak. And I say this to Kevin Rudd. Thank you. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. I know that there have been many losses over the years and just in the last 12 months, Archie Roach and Jack Charles, who is so important to the truth in this country. And the legacy of all of you is something that is absolutely changed Australia and I really want you to understand that. Archie sang one sweet day all the children came back, the children came back, back to where the hearts grew strong, back to where they all belong. To the Healing Foundation, thank you for all the work that you do and to make sure that healing is a fundamental part of the work that you've done with the Stolen Generations, families, communities, front of mind for all of us. The work is vital to make sure that governments and policymakers understand what survivors and their families need to heal. The Healing Foundation's CEO, Fiona Comfort, said this, Removal is the origin of trauma for too many of our peoples. Intergenerational trauma can end with intergenerational healing. And that is so true.
The first step for many in a healing journey is to hear a heartfelt and genuine apology. In 1992, I was a very young woman and in the park that day, Paul Keating famously acknowledged so powerfully that it was non-Aboriginal Australians that took the children from their mothers. He spoke of prejudice and ignorance, the effects of which we still feel today. Fifteen years later, Kevin Rudd delivered the apology formally and unconditionally when he said, we apologise, especially for the removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families, their communities and their country. For the pain, suffering and hurt of those stolen generations, their descendants and their families left behind, we say sorry. To the mothers and fathers, to the brothers and sisters, for the breaking up of families and communities, we say sorry. Now, 15 years on again, we can consider the importance of this statement. It is easy to say the apology didn't fix everything. But the apology was about healing a very deep wound. The closing of a painful chapter of denial of our history. And the opening of a new chapter in our collective story, a better chapter speaking the truth. It was about people. It was about you, real people. The people in this room today hearing an apology from the Prime Minister of Australia for the pain and suffering that so many of you lived with and continue to. It was the truth. We can never, ever underestimate the power of the truth. The apology was also a catalyst for more important practical change, like closing the gap targets for the Territories Redress Scheme that has been in place since 2021. And importantly, it kindled hope for the next steps in the road to true reconciliation expressed through the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I know that some people who boycotted that historic day in 2008 have since expressed their regret. They now admit that it was a mistake. And I say to those people, don't make the same mistake again. When a generous and gracious hand is outstretched in partnership, it should be grasped. It should be taken into your hand. To do anything else would be to repeat the mistakes of the past. After the apology, you might remember a glass coulomon presented to Prime Minister Rudd and Minister Macklin on behalf of the survivors. It was one of the most generous acts I have ever seen. In fact, it was the most generous act that I ever seen. The Kulamon contained a message. Of course, we know we carried our babies in them. It said, on behalf of our people, thank you for saying sorry. In return, we give you this gift on behalf of us 
affected by being taken away from our families. This is our way of saying thank you. The gift is a glass Coulomon, fragile yet strong. Coulomons have carried our children. The gift is a symbol of the hope we place in the new relationship you wish to forge with our people. A relationship that itself is fragile yet strong. So where to from here? As we just heard from Archie Roach, what is a new story? I've just come back from Alice Springs and the young people in Alice Springs are being called the children of the intervention. I also know that when that apology happened 15 years ago for me, it was like the country could breathe again. The apology was an acknowledgement that over decades, governments of different persuasions failed our people. It was also a commitment to do better in the future. We still haven't fulfilled that commitment to do better. And as I close, can I say these words? Now is the time to embrace the possibility of new ways to address challenges where old approaches haven't worked. A future that ensures we have a voice on the issues that affect us. Because we know that the solution to so many of our challenges are found in our communities at the grassroots level. Pat Turner in this room knows that better than anyone. A future of truth-telling through Baccarata, where the injustices of the past are fully heard and listened to. A future where we move Australia forward for everyone. Later this year, there will be a referendum on constitutional recognition through a voice. And it's my deepest wish that Australians vote yes. Yes to an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. And yes to a better future for all Australians. Can I conclude by recognising the strength and the resilience of the members of the stolen generations and their families here today? A strength and resilience that grows. Your stories are so important for our nation to hear. The Bringing Them Home report drew a line in the sand in this country and that line said that you can never say you didn't know about it. Your stories are so important to, for our nation to hear. To hear your stories of survival and healing is telling the truth. Thank you. That's Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney. You also heard from First Nations Foundation Chairperson Ian Ham, CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation and Head of the Coalition of Peaks, Aunty Pat Turner. They were speaking earlier this month at an event hosted by the Healing Foundation. The story's right, the story's true I would not tell lies to you like the promises they did not keep And how they fenced us in like sheep Said to us, come take our hand Set us up on mission land Told us to read, to write and pray Then they took the G 
the show for this week. Join us again next week when we profile a groundbreaking collection of First Nations LGBTQIA plus poets, writers and storytellers. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.